Hello and welcome to the Literati Cast, and welcome to spring! I am Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. I rep kids' books for all ages, and on this podcast, my friends and I dish about the magical world of children's book publishing. Today is a jam-packed double episode, so I'm going to get right into it. I have interviews with two amazing YA authors today, whose books are literally polar opposites from each other, but who do share two very important characteristics. One, they have written terrific books. And two, those books come out April 3rd, 2018. (laughs) I think that both Amy Spaulding and Justina Ireland have a ton of great information to share, and their books are both amongst my favorite recent reads. So I like to think that there's a little something for everyone in this double episode. First up, Amy Spaulding is a comedian, YA author, a hamburger aficionado, and a genuine delight who lives in Los Angeles, which makes it fitting that her new book, The Summer of Jordi Perez and the Best Burger in Los Angeles, is a delightful and hilarious and genuine YA novel about first love and hamburgers set in Los Angeles. Let me see if I can get Amy on the line. Hey, Amy. Hello. So, um... First of all, what's your deal? Tell me everything. Like, did you always want to be a writer? I did always want to be a writer. Uh, since I was, I think since I figured out that there were writers, like I always loved stories, like what was going on, like TV with different characters. And I loved reading. And I think at a certain point I was like, oh, if you're interested in characters, you could like tell your own story about your own characters. And that was sort of like, a revelation to me. And once I knew that, I was like, that's what I want to do. So why YA books in particular? So I didn't set out to write YA books. In fact, I will say when I was starting to write, like I started writing when I was a little kid. Like when I talk about like getting excited about all of that, I was like eight or nine years old. So I was not, I think when you say that people are like, oh, were you some sort of like ingenue? Are you a genius? Are you perco- I'm like, no, I was terrible. I was writing the exact kind of things you think an eight-year-old would write, i.e. <laughs> nothing good. Um, I mean, eight-year-olds should definitely try to write. It's just they should not be published. So probably, that is, you know, yes. probably there's probably some exceptions. But in general, no, it took me a while to actually, I think, become decent enough that other people should read what I was doing. And So I got really serious about it in my 20s. And so I thought, you know, okay, I can either keep doing this as a hobby or I need to learn how to do it for real. Mm -hmm. And I was always writing stories where teenagers took a really, either they were the main part of the story or they were a big part of the story. And every time I asked for feedback, people would sort of, be like almost like derisively like oh well maybe for a young adult story this is okay but it's not very good otherwise which is like ridiculous like in retrospect I'm just like well those people were rude there's other ways to say you know there's also like like YA is not a worse category but when I was growing up I I'm 40 and when I was you know 12 there there was not like YA is as YA is today mm-hmm it was, you know, like Sweet Valley High and then like some books that won, you know, the Newberry or whatever. And like, that was to me, that felt like that was it. You just, you kind of went from reading, you know, the Babysitter's Club level to some Sweet Valley High and then like adult books. So I think that's what, yeah, exactly. 
So with some maybe like historical romances thrown in there, if you oh, yeah. wanted something I was like all about um, Sweet Valley High. And I actually read them at the same time. I would be like Sweet Valley High, Babysitter's Club, and also Judith Krantz. Yes, that is very much my exact reading list at some point. And probably <laughs> like of so many other women around my age. I think that was a really just standard thing to do. And, and not to say that people aren't, you know, these days reading you know, some middle grade and some young adult and some genre or whatever. But I think we did it because there wasn't really quite the right area for us at that point, or at least so much less of it. And it wasn't publicized. It certainly wasn't cool. And so I didn't really know that YA was how it is now. And so when people were kind of being rude to me about it, some friends were like, no, YA is amazing. What are you talking about? And gave me like a list of books to check out. And I remember I went, I had this like list of recommendations, but I went to the library and I was like in the children's section. I was like, this seems wrong. I'm an adult woman. I'm going to get a stern talking to by a librarian. (laughs) And instead, like obviously no one cared that I was there. And I read all these books that were amazing. And I thought, oh, this is definitely what I've been trying to do. I had no idea this was a whole cool genre. And that sort of flipped my thinking on it. And it honestly was the best thing that could have happened to me because I was then not only was I like, Oh, I am trying to do a thing that I just didn't know about. And now I can learn about that thing and get better at it specifically. But also it just made me excited because there were all these like authors I'd never heard of all these people doing like what I wanted to do. And so it just, it really made me excited. Um, Your books are always full of humor and heart, but aside from like, the having jokes aspect. (laughs) I know that you have an improv comedy background. Has that helped in your writing career? Um, probably. Yeah. I don't want to say like, take improv. It'll be a published author because it's not a guarantee, but I think, I think it just makes you a, I think it makes you a stronger writer period. I have like a little talk I've done before with some writers groups that I hope, I hope to like expand on and do more of, but I think there's a lot of things from improv that have nothing to do with actually like comedy that just have to do with like very concise, immediate storytelling and you know, how to heighten certain things, how to, you know, justify maybe an unusual thing happening, how to kind of get everyone on board a certain idea. And the great thing is none of that, None of that has to be about humor. That can be about, you know, like how to raise the stakes within a fantasy world or like how to make, you know, within your sci-fi story, how to like justify that, you know, gravity functions in a certain way. So I think, I think improv can help writing just period. For me, it was also really good because, you know, I'm from the Midwest and in the Midwest, I think, (laughs) I think there's sort of an idea that you should just, you should get a job and you probably won't like it, but it'll pay your bills and you'll be a good, responsible citizen. And if you want something more than that, you're being, you know, selfish and ridiculous. And you should just, you know, go off to Hollywood with those losers, which first of all, I did move to Los Angeles and work in the industry. So I just, for one thing, just actually did that. But there's something about, you know, being in a community where people are trying to, people are trying to achieve certain things like becoming an actor, you know, getting a TV staff writing job. and you know, getting their SNL packet together, or that's normal and taken seriously. And so then when you show up, and you're like, Oh, I want to get a young adult novel published, people are like, Oh, cool. Where are you in that process? And not like, 
oh, I want to go to the moon, <laughs> which is sort of how I felt like in my earlier years, it was treated when I brought it up. So I think it can also just be really good to be part of a creative community where your desires are treated. Like as long as you're actively trying to achieve stuff, people are like, okay, that's doable. Why not? <laughs> that's good. Um, to talk about your path to publication. Like how did you get here? So like I said, in my 20s, I decided to start getting really serious about writing in a way that I hadn't been before. I, I, I was always writing, but I kind of didn't look up any rules. Like I would have manuscripts that were just like 500 pages, but also nothing really happened. It was just sort of some stuff and some witty banter. And at a certain point, I was like, okay, if you want to do this for real and not just be a hobby, you have to learn about it. And so I started, you know, really getting into YA made a huge difference seeing how those books were structured. And then I also, after I finished sort of like a manuscript I thought was good enough, I spent about six months just reading about like literary agents and how to query and, you know, what editors were looking for when they got submissions, things like that, just like trying to understand how the business actually worked Mm -hmm. so that when I was going to enter it, that I sort of like knew a little bit. I was also, I should say at the time, like an assistant who was really bored with her job. So it was a really good period in life to be like, well, I've got about two hours for some blog reading. So (laughs) it it timed out well. And after, after doing all that research, I realized that I didn't actually think I had a manuscript that was ready. Because when I sat down to write the query letter, I was like, I don't, there's no explanation for what this book is. (laughs) That's a really good, I feel like that's actually a good trick to find out if you have a viable manuscript. Like if you honestly cannot pitch it, then maybe there's a problem. It's not a book maybe. I have told people that, but I always caveat it with also query letters are really hard to write and maybe you just need to like take a day off. But if you literally cannot sum up your book that way, maybe it's not ready to go out. So I wrote, I wrote a different book then knowing everything that I'd learned. And that was in 2008. And I started sending that out to agents. I got a lot of, you know, requests for partials. And I didn't, I always like to tell people, I didn't know anyone. I didn't, you know, I didn't have connections. I wasn't, you know, I was totally in the slush pile. I I had nothing to put in my, in my query letter of like, here's how cool I am. I was like, I have no experience in this. Uh, Here's a book. So I always, I like to say that because I still think there's this, you know, there's this idea that if only you know the right person or the right magic thing to say or have that one right key experience that it's all much easier. But I didn't have any of that. And I got a bunch of partial requests, I think, just because I had a good, uh, I had a decent title. And I was querying on my, what ended up being my second book, Ink is Thicker Than Water. And because people like the pitch. So mm-hmm. I'm always like, it's okay if you don't know anyone or have any experience. If you, if people think they can sell what you're, what you're pitching, that's going to be enough. That's literally what we want. Yeah, exactly. So, um, that was like 2000 and mid 2008, uh, an agent ended up having a lot of notes and I decided, um, before sending out the full to anyone, I wanted to do those notes because they were so good. And so I spent a couple months revising and then sent it back to everyone. And the, the agent who'd asked for the revision was like, basically like, just no, absolutely not. <laughs> Which was kind of like, Oh, I, I this for you. I thought we were in this together. Aww. Um, but two, two other agents offered, including my, uh, 
current agent, Kate. And that by then it was early 2009, I think. And I thought, oh, like I heard it was, re- I heard it was so hard to get an agent. And this was pretty easy. Like I got, she was really one of my very first choices. I, her client roster was great. I felt like she was going to get what, not just that book, but like everything I wanted to do. And so I was like, oh my God, like within a few months, I got my top choice agent. I'm going to sell this book in like a week. Uh, so that was 2009. I did not sell my <laughs> book until 2012. So I like to tell people, I think it just often takes some time and you don't know where the time is going to be. Yeah. For me, it was not getting the agent. It was getting the deal. That absolutely happens. I think that's a thing, really. No, because I know people who took, it took them years to get an agent and then their agent like got two offers within the first week. So it, I think it just, you've got to put in the time somewhere often, but where the time is, is could be a secret. So all of that leads us to now. Your fifth book is coming out April 3rd. Uh, yay! The summer. Yay. <laughs> the summer. It's so soon. It's like less than a month now. I'm like, how did that happen? I know. So the summer of Jordi Perez and the best burger in Los Angeles is very briefly a rom-com about a fashion maven and a photographer who fall for each other while competing for a prestigious job. It's about friendship and first love in LA and also about the search for the perfect burger. And your main character is a fat, queer, pink-haired, rainbow-bright, vintage-wearing fashionista in Los Angeles. When I was a teenager in Los Angeles, I was also a fat, queer, pink-haired, rainbow-bright, vintage-wearing kid, so I felt very seen by this book. Thank you. That makes me so happy. (laughs) Um, when I was a teenager, as we talked about, um, and even a little bit later, most of the books, if there were books about gay teens, they were ultimately tragic or depressing, at least. And I'm kind of loving that queer kids in YA are now getting to just have relationships and be happy and complicated and everything else. Yeah, I st- I feel like this was even true maybe, you know, three, four years ago, because I started working... I started thinking about this book, I would say like 2014, yeah, about 2014. And even then, there were so few queer books that were just happy. Yeah, Even the ones that I felt like had happy endings, like you had to go through something really rough to get there. And I remember thinking like, oh, if I was, (laughs) I mean, when I don't even remember books that had gay teens in them when I was that age myself. I felt like that was like the early mid nineties was when I feel like TV was starting to get comfortable with putting gay people on, but like often it would be something usually just someone with AIDS or it was just always like, it was just tragedy and, or it was because it was sort of like, I've heard people refer to it as like homework. It's like, Oh, well you should meet this gay person to learn what discrimination is and why we should have equal rights, which is true. <laughs> but it always felt like it had to be like, like, why couldn't they just have a storyline that didn't have to do with like, oh, well, now the straight people understand why we should be nice to gay people versus just like, well, they're humans. <laughs> <laughs> is that enough? No. Oh, oh, well, also discrimination now. <laughs> so and I felt like even a few years ago, every time I was like, ooh, queer book, gotta read it. And I'd be like, oh, this kid got beat up or their mom kicked him out or their church doesn't like them anymore. And I'm really, first of all, I know that there are exceptions to that out there. And there's just more and more every day, which is so, like you said, it's just so awesome. But it also just, it just made me really sad because I thought, okay, I do think it's important to have some books that 
reflect reality. And unfortunately, reality is still kind of crappy in a lot of ways. Like we, despite that a lot of good things have happened, obviously there's still a lot of homophobia. Um, trans teens can be just so vulnerable within our society. It's, there's, there's a lot of real scary things to deal with, but there are a lot of real scary things for all teens to deal with. And yet we still get fluffy books for the straight ones. And so I thought like, why, why aren't there more like this? And you know, I just, I didn't want, I didn't want to write a story that was like, well, here's the sad things. And finally she got through them. So now she's allowed to kiss someone. It's like, (laughs) no, I just want to like, speaking of improv, improv is like, get into the scene and get to what's important about it. Like what's important was like the making out. So why am I going to like spend page space on like, well, here's a coming out part. And again, not that these things aren't important. I just think there's so many more stories to tell. Absolutely. Um, this book was such a joy to read. Was it as fun to write? It was. It is the best writing experience I've ever had. I was hoping it like, like I couldn't stop writing this book. It was like it was pouring out of me and I just had to like sit down on my computer and like let it come to the pages. It was just, oh, it was wonderful. Unfortunately, it does seem isolated. Like I was like, oh, this was my easy one, I guess, because, (laughs) you know, my sixth book was real hard and took a lot of effort. So I was like, oh, I thought I just learned to write better. (laughs) No, I think everyone gets a real, a real joyful, easy write. And that was mine. But unfortunately, that's not, it's, you know, some of the other, the forthcoming ones could be hard. Too. <laughs> um, so basically, everything feels political to me right now. But was Jordy in any way a response to the current political or cultural climate? Well, the interesting thing about when I wrote Jordy, I wrote it um, sort of late spring, early summer 2015. And that is the year that um, <laughs> I actually was like, oh, this book's going to sell so fast because here's three things that just happened. Gay marriage got legalized federally. Amazing. Um, Fun Home won a bunch of Tonys and then the Women's World Cup. We won it. So I was like, this is a time for queer women. We're stepping up and taking opportunities. Let's do this. And so I, (laughs) yeah, I was like, oh, I'm getting in there. This is the best time to be pitching this book. I was so excited. And obviously... It took a bit to sell. And by the time I was working on edits, um, a lot had changed politically. I was not coming from a place of like, the world is mine. I was like, oh, shit, things are happening that are very bad. And I, uh, I feel I had a moment where I was just like, why did I write this book about these two happy lesbian girls? Now the world's terrible and it hates them. And what am I writing about burgers and fun? <laughs> I should be writing about activism. And I, you know, I really got upset. And after, as I'm sure lots of us did after the election, and the more I thought about it, I was like, no, I'm actually, all the reasons I wanted to write this in the first place, I, you know, these are all still true. And a lot of, you know, a lot of teens, especially teens who maybe, you know, grow up in a place like LA, other, you know, a lot of our countries are real blue, real, you know real gay friendly. And, you know, I still wanted to have a story that wasn't about the struggle that wasn't about, you know, the sadness, even if it's happening, because we still need those, you know, escapist stories in these times, too. And the more I think about it, I was like, Oh, yeah, there is something super political about being No, this isn't a hardship. This is great. So 
part of main character Abby's deal is she's a semi-public figure in that she has a successful fashion blog. But even though she's outgoing with her friends, she's into body positivity, etc., she's still shy with strangers. She values her privacy. Fair enough. And she's kind of struggling with how to navigate being a genuine person on the internet. Um, that is to say, people crave getting to know you in a candid way. But then they can also be dickbags about it, to be honest. <laughs> so yeah, that's true. you have an amazing online persona. Basically, I felt like we're BFFs Ooh, before we ever even met. Not in a creepy way. I felt the same way. I also feel like your online persona is very exciting. So <laughs> Thank you. You should take that compliment for yourself as well. I will. <laughs> but um, but is, this, uh, <laughs> is Abby's struggle, this personal versus public thing, a balance that you've had to figure out to na- how to navigate to? How, how do you do it? Yeah. I mean, Abby is definitely, it's so funny because I'm like, we have a lot in common. I I did get jealous of writing a girl with pink hair and dyed my own hair pink. <laughs> I am fat. Um, I it, there, we have, we share so much. Um, I also would have for sure had a crush on Jordy and been very intimidated by her and her like strong, silent ways. So you know, I really relate to Abby. But we, you know, we're not the same person. I didn't just write you know me as a teen or even me as an adult as a teen. But I, it was funny how when you when you are a fat person writing about a fat person, I think it's impossible not to let your own personal experience come in in ways that you don't anticipate it. And, you know, one thing I think that happens to me a lot is I I really want to be, I want to be a positive voice for fat representation. I don't want people to like, see me hating on myself in any way, especially like younger people. I, you know, I want to be really positive. I also, I want to seem most of the time I'm not like walking around like, oh, I'm fat. I'm thinking about how I'm fat. And isn't it sad? And you know, the way I've seen fat characters written in the past. And I think because of that, I can overcompensate because I don't want anyone to think that I'm ever having a day where I do feel like that. Because of course I think most unfortunately women in our society and probably plenty of men too, you know, you, even when you have decent self-esteem you can have those moments where you're like, ugh, if only this was different about me, things would be easier or people would be nicer to me. And, you know, I've, I've definitely, I've tweeted things before where I sort of like, uh, I think this person was being really rude to me because I'm fat. And then later I would think like, I just like, I don't necessarily want a younger person seeing that and thinking like, ugh, I could, you know, I could be a published author and have a cool job and still like, this is how people treat me. And isn't that a bummer? Like, like, I'm just like, oh, I don't want to put that negativity out there either. And so, you know, I've, I've deleted things before because I'm worried about being like too much of a downer. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, I want to be, I want to be realistic. And it is a struggle. And you can feel real good about yourself and know that there are people who think really shitty things about you. And it's, it's complicated is, is the short That's version. Um, changing text. How was it working with a smaller publisher for this book? You know, it was, I've now been at like a real small publisher and a real big publisher and now a pretty small publisher. And it's always interesting, like where you find, you know, because like probably no publisher is perfect. Sorry to all the publishers (laughs) listening. Um, I'm sure you yourself are really great. Um, Because there are things that, you know, like there aren't as many arcs printed and you have to be a little, you know careful about like where they get sent to and who's going to get things and there's less money for our marketing and promotions but 
I will also say they Skypony has been so invested in making sure I'm really happy with the whole process. You know, they sent me some cover ideas and I was like, oh, I don't like any of these. I was thinking something more like this. And they're like, okay, great. What do you think about this idea? And I was like, I love it. What about this font? And they're like, we love that font choice. And like, it was very, it was very collaborative. And they kept just like wanting to make sure I was happy with things. And in a way that like on my, on the cover of my last book, uh, the new guy, you know, my publish, my big publisher sent me that image and I was like, why is there a skateboard? There's no skateboarding in this book. They're like, just go with it. I'm like, no, I please take <laughs> off that skateboard. And now, of course, there's Amazon reviews that are like, why is there a skateboard on this book? It doesn't make any sense. I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that it was just like one of those moments where, you know, I'm like, okay, well, they're not sending me to a bunch of conventions, but also they like made, they really made sure that like the book going out there was exactly the way I wanted it to be. And that like felt, so I feel like you always get something out of a publisher that's going to be a positive. And now I think considering it's my fifth book, I think on some of the things, you know, having maybe less of a promotions budget, all of that, it doesn't matter as much for me because you know, people know me ish by now. So it's not like I'm trying to launch a new book. But yeah, I've had I've had good experiences at both. And I've had struggles at both. So it's, it's always interesting. I think that's really important to note. I mean, I think that a lot of times people are like, Oh, I only want some, you know, the massive publisher and da da da. But you know, that can be problematic, too. Or, you know, I mean, I think that th- there's good and bad about both about everything in this world. Yeah, I mean, my, <laughs> so, um, my first two books were with a real small press and my advance was real small and I get a check every three, four, every, you know, three months or so now. That's not bad. So because I earned out like the day it came out because the advance was so small and you know, I'm always just going to keep earning a little bit on those books and it's great. Yeah. And you know, that doesn't necessarily happen from a big five because you get that nice advance and then that may be like the last money you ever see in that book. So what would you say to writers who are maybe stuck or feeling discouraged with publishing? It's complicated in that some of it is internal where you're like, you're holding yourself back. But publishing is also really, <laughs> I, I know this is a really giant revelation, but publishing is complicated <laughs> and a lot of different stuff happens in it. And, you know, when I was trying to sell my first books, that was when, you know, Twilight was still really, really huge. And people basically were like, yeah, we just want paranormal romance right now, unless we think you're the next like, huge thing. And I'm not, I'm never going to be anyone's next huge thing. I'm hoping to be like someone's next like little <laughs> thing. So it just was never going to be me. And that was not a thing I could change because that was literally just what the market was like in 2009. And so like, if I was discouraged about that, sort of like, well, yeah, you got to hang in there because that might not change right away. And, you know, luckily, in the meantime, I kept writing and I had stuff ready to go, luckily, when people were kind of willing to take chances again. So there's, there's that part where sometimes just the reality of it is that it's hard and you have to kind of hang in there. And then, you know, whenever you're pushing yourself back for real or imagined reasons, I don't know. My my thing is I always kind of allow myself to quit and see if I miss it because I always do. I'm just like, well, maybe I just won't write anymore. Like if this is just hard and it just feels like rejection, maybe I just won't write. And usually within, you know, within the month, I'm like, 
oh, but what if there was a story about this? And then what if this happened? What if this happened? And then I'm back at my computer and it's fine. Uh, when I was a younger person, I wanted to be a writer too. And I tried to write way and I, it sucked. It was so hard. And I was like, you know what? I'll just, I'll do that. I'll quit and I'll see if I miss it. And you know what? I did not. It was terrible. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I was not meant to be a writer and that's good. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's an important thing too, is that like, you still have a really cool career that deals with young adult novels. You're hardly like away from oh, that yeah. world. So that's, I don't want to say like, isn't it cool that you can learn you don't want to be a writer, but it is because it might open up something totally different that you're good at that you don't want to quit yeah. all the time. And that doesn't make you feel terrible. Yeah. But the reason I see it as like a quitting and stepping away is because whenever I'm just sort of like, okay, take the day off and then try to get back to it tomorrow. And then when you still don't want to do it the next day, you just, you then feel terrible about yourself because you feel like you've let yourself down. You've let your story down. You've let your future career down. And it's very hard to then for me at least, but when I'm just like feeling like a miserable failure, I'm not like, oh, I can't wait to go and be creative for people to eventually read. I'm just like, I'm going to sit on the couch and watch Netflix for three <laughs> hours. So I, I like the idea of it being more like a quitting so that when you're not working on it in the meantime, you don't have to like hate yourself. So not to get too derailed here, but we need to have a serious conversation, Amy. Are you ready? All right. All right. I'm, I hope <laughs> so. I don't know if you are. So my New York friends will get annoyed right now. Because I'm about to drop a truth bomb. Food in Los Angeles, in general, is much better than food in New York. It's so much better. And burgers, by the way, burgers in LA are one trillion times better. This is like the one of the very best places to have burgers. Just period. New York, your burger game is pathetic. I'm very sorry. I'm not sorry. It's just the (laughs) truth. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so that uh, leads me to ask. How much very important scientific burger research did you do for this book? And also, I did so much. do you have a favorite if you can choose? Oh, yeah. I mean, I did a lot of research. It was, I think, the only time that I've ever had, you know, friends like, are you still working on that burger book? Do you want to check this place out? Do you want to, like, nobody ever wants to help you with book research, <laughs> ever, until people knew I was working on a book that had a burger supply. And then everyone had an opinion. I had a Google Doc that people could, like, fill in and suggest places. And I tried so many burgers with so many different people. And the good news is all the burgers. Were good. <laughs> like I didn't, I had no bad experiences. It was just, you know, front to back. Great. Um, I do. I feel like the LA cliche for me is true. I really do love in and out, but that's sort of my, like my like drive through burger option. I do really like, I, I feel like it's super basic to like umami burger because they start sort of like started the big burger revolution here. But I really, I had kind of gotten away from them with, you know, I was eating at some of their like, the things that had been then inspired by umami burger. But they have a vegetarian, they serve a vegetarian burger there called the impossible burger. And I wanted to try it. And when I went back, I was like, oh, yeah, they're just they really are better. They're so good. They're a little overpriced. but I do really love umami. Fair enough. Um, I will. So that's sort of my, that's like my sort of like high and low option. <laughs> I, I personally am firmly in the camp of if, whenever I go to visit my family, my first stop has to be to get a Tommy's burger. I literally ate a Tommy's burger for lunch yes. today because I was thinking about burgers <laughs> and 
the funny thing is, I think they just like by default put oh, chili yeah, on they them. Do. Which I didn't know. I thought you had to ask oh, no, for no, the no. chili. So I was sort of like, my stomach was like a little rumbly earlier. And I was like, uh, I'm just going to have a cheeseburger and see if I feel better. And then I open it when I get back to my apartment and it is loaded with chili. And really, when your stomach's a little iffy, you should probably not eat a chili cheeseburger. But I was like, well, I have it. I mean, I might as well eat it. What am I doing? So you might know hit the spot. I feel yes. great now. I think it, the burger it's cured healing. Me. The healing powers of Tommy Burger. Um, and you mentioned it in and out. So I have to ask if you have a secret favorite, favorite secret menu item. I definitely get everything like animal style. So explain to the which explain I to the non-Californians what that means. Thousand Island dressing and grilled onions. Is that it? Is that what yeah, they do? They More do cheese, grilled, maybe grilled onions are for sure. And they, but the thing is, I knew. I always knew. I guess as soon as I knew about the secret menu, I knew that you could get burgers animal style. But then I was with a friend once, and she ordered her fries animal style, and it blew my yeah. mind. So it's a gr- it's a great thing to find to find. When out about. I was a kid, I was a vegetarian for a while, and I loved to get the grilled cheese at In and Out, which is a secret menu item, and it is literally just the burger with everything except for the meat, and it is. You know what's funny is. I heard about that years ago on a, some actress was on a talk show saying she loved to go to In-N-Out and the talk show host was like, aren't you a vegetarian? She's like, I always just ask for a grilled cheese. And I was a vegetarian. I was also a teenage vegetarian. So <laughs> I was a teenage I vegetarian. Was, the Amy's clothing story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to, because I lived in Missouri, we didn't have In-N-Out. So I like went to McDonald's and was like, can I have a cheeseburger with no patty? And they were like, what the hell? But they did it, and I loved well, it. I would so. go to McDonald's and say, "I'd like a cheeseburger, but with tomato instead of meat," and they would do that. Ooh, that feels easier to understand. I think not making a substitution. They were just like, "Wait, what? <laughs> what do you want on it? I don't get it. I don't get it." Okay, so thank you. I really needed to get that burger chat out of my system. So now that it is, it was. Important. This is important yeah. stuff. So um, now I can ask for some recommendations. I know we love to talk about books. So what are some new or forthcoming books that YA readers should for sure check out if they love Jordi Perez? Okay. Well, if you just, if you're just like, I want a good romantic comedy, I think everything Maureen Gu writes is so smart and funny and romantic. Um, I loved her book last year. I believe in a thing called love and her forthcoming book, the way you make me feel is wonderful. Uh, Britta Lundin has a book called ship it coming out in May. I believe that is queer and also about fandom and conventions. And I adored it. So those are sort of, those are sort of the ones that come top of mind to me. Um, I, I just started reading dear Rachel Maddow by, Oh, it's, I'm going to mess your name up. Adrian Kisner. I just looked it mm. up. So I, which is also queer, but also obviously Rachel Maddow's name's in the title. So I'm like on board immediately. <laughs> and I'm a few chapters into that and really enjoying it. So um, I always ask everyone, every week, every podcast, uh, what are you obsessed with? And I ask this honestly, because I want to talk about what I'm obsessed with. So what are you I'll tell with? you in a second. So the, I'll, the rule is this: it can be bookish, but it doesn't have to be. 
So while okay. you think of yours, I will tell you mine. My current obsession is the middle grade graphic novel, The Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Wang. Um, I read a tweet by my friend Zach who tweeted that it was the only comps he can think of was Cinderella meets Kinky Boots. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I've read The Prince and the Dressmaker. Jen's a friend of mine. And it is so wonderful. I want everyone to read it. My That's so funny because my pitch was, it's like if a Disney cartoon was gender fluid. Nice. So, <laughs> yeah. It's a but yeah, it has that like... Oh. That like really like wonderful that like childlike wonder and fun aspect to it, but obviously it's like tackling some other stuff. But it's sort of again, it's not like homework. It's just like yeah, here's everything. Take it. Also, I think that Abby from Jordi Perez would have loved this book. Oh my god, yes! Because the fashion in this book is incredible, and just. It's so beautiful. There's so like the details in it. I would just like get lost looking at at the art. Yeah, see, obsessed. Okay, so yeah, it's great. Amy Spaulding, what are you obsessed with? Oh my god, um, I've been <laughs> I've been binge watching ER since they put it up on Hulu, which is uh, everyone who talks to me regularly knows this because it's sort of like all I've been doing with my like. I need like down, I have a day job, full-time day job. And, you know, I'm in the middle of promoting a new book. So my brain is sort of like had enough a lot of times at the end of the night. So I don't like, don't want to take it. Everyone's like, Oh, have you watched this new show? Have you seen this new season? I'm like, I don't have the brain space for it. I just go home and I watch ER, a show I saw when it aired, you know, 20 some years ago. <laughs> so I'm just, so, but I feel like it's just like medical dramas in general. I've really, uh, it feels like it's taken a resurgence with me because then Watching old episodes of VR made me like think a lot about Grey's Anatomy, which I also is like, I almost like a guilty pleasure of mine, but I also don't believe in guilty pleasures. It's just that you're admitting you like a thing that has some problems. <laughs> well, I literally had never seen Grey's Anatomy in my life until last year at some point, And now I've seen all of it. So yeah, it, it goes real yeah. fast. Almost too fast. There's oh, some yeah. problems like ghost boning. I'm not... Ghost boning oh. is the main <laughs> issue, <laughs> I would say. And I'm so sorry if you I have mean, the fact not that watched Grey's Anatomy. Spoiler alert, there's ghost boning. <laughs> well, it's funny, too, because I definitely, I, I wrote a little piece about this for the Two Bossy Dames newsletter, but I think there's a lot about ER that gets celebrated because it's sort of like male leading and male POV and a lot that gets denigrated about Grey's Anatomy because it's very female driven. But when you look at some of the specifics, it's actually more, I think, alike than people realize. And I'm sure it was a huge inspiration for Shonda Rhimes. But I'm like, but don't let that fool you. Grey's Anatomy had ghost boning. <laughs> and so I'm certainly not saying that sexism is the only reason it's not taken seriously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you for that. Now I'm going to have to maybe start ER. I don't know if I can do it, but I uh, maybe. It's 15 seasons. I, oh, I'm like in seven right now. And I'm like, oh, I already feel like so many people have left us. We're so far off from where we started. <laughs> uh, but it's now like just such a like, I get home at the end of the night and I'm tired. I'm like, well, it's it's time for ER. Like what ER else would it be? <laughs> 
Um, and also, it's always that time. I'm going to put a link to the two bossy dames newsletter in the show notes, because I think that that is a really good, fun thing that people who listen to this will also enjoy. I, you know what? Great. And there's also a really good essay in the same newsletter by my friend and writer, Jasmine Guillory about the Royal engagement. Yes. You know, more bang for your buck, which is also (laughs) (laughs) all right. Amy Spaulding, it's been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And everyone needs to go read The Summer of Jordi Perez and The Best Burger in Los Angeles. And uh, there will be links in the show notes. And everyone feel free once you read it, or even before you read it, you can tell me what you think The Best Burger in Los Angeles is. Yes, that is an open invitation. I'm open to Yeah. The floodgates are open. Let's do this. Thank you, Amy Spaulding. Her book, The Summer of Jordi Perez and the Best Burger in Los Angeles, is brand new as of April 3rd, and it is available in fine booksellers near you and online. Read it. Next up, I'm beyond thrilled to interview Justina Ireland. Her new novel, Dread Nation, is an alternate historical with a smidge of fantasy and a spattering of blood. It shattered my already sky-high expectations. It's honestly a work of genius, I think. And we'll get into all of it right now. Hi, Justina. Hey, Jen. How's it going? Great. So let's start with what is your backstory? <laughs> it's always such a loaded question. It's like, what's your deal, man? Um, what's your deal, man? <laughs> what's your deal, man? Um, so I, you know, like, I think like most of everybody else, I'm a huge reader. Um, I started writing because I was a reader. Um, and because like, you know, that whole cliched, you know, write the book you want to read. Um, but also I started writing, um, when I was uh, pregnant with my daughter and it was mostly because like buying kids books was really frustrating for me because it's like, you know, there was just, uh, this New York times, um, op-ed where the lady was like, I went, wanted to buy books for my daughter when she was born. And the only like books with black main characters were Harriet Tubman and, and like other civil rights leaders and that sort of thing. Um, and that's kind of like how I started writing just because I would go out and read the books that were on offer. And I was like, yeah, you know, I can do better than this because, you know, like writing's an, an exercise in ego. And so of course I thought I could do better, (laughs) right? Like, like, that's the funny thing. It's like, you, you read a book and you're like, I can do better than this. (laughs) Try (laughs) and it's not better. Um, and you try for a long time and then you're either going to, you know, say, okay, I can figure out how to do better than this, or maybe I can do as good as this, or maybe like this writing thing isn't take. And for me, like the, the more I sucked at writing, the more I wanted to get better at it. Um, so I ended up, um, kept writing and now here I am. I have, I have real live books. Yes. Uh, I, I met you in real life when I was doing a talk at the Hamlin MFA program and you were in the program. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, because I felt like, Justina, you're already a professional writer. You should be teaching the program. So there's this like really funny idea that if you're published, you're a good writer. And that's so not true. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, my, like my first two books, like now that like I've finished a, an MFA, I can see like where like I went wrong in those stories and I'm always like, and then I can like read other people's books and I can see like, Oh, if you know, if they would have done this, like they would have gotten this through line would have come through cleaner or, you know, what they could have come together better in the third act. Like, I think the idea that you have to be a good writer to get published is one of those ones we kind of need to like toss out of our, our like 
our brain meets because like you really just have to be a good storyteller and being a good storyteller is not the same thing as being a good writer. Um, you can pick up like, for example, Dean Koontz is a great storyteller. He's a terrible writer. Like you look at his sense level work and you're like, come on, Dean, you've been at this for like 30 years. <laughs> like you can do better. And I'm, I mean, like I love a Dean Koontz book, right? Like you sit there and you just rip through it, but that's the thing about like writing. It's like, there's so many different ways to do it. And like, there's doing it, there's doing it to, in a way that's serviceable. And there's doing a way that you can do it well. And after, so after our promise of shadows, my second book came out, um, Simon Schuster basically released me from my contract, which is one of those things that happens all the time to people and that nobody ever talks about happening. Um, and so like, I was pretty much kind of, you know, at that point where I was like, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know how to make myself a better writer. I had done all I could on my own because I'm essentially a lazy person, right? So I don't want to like, I want to work smarter, not harder. So I was like, well, if I want to figure out how to write, maybe I should go like to this program that's, you know, all about writing. And so that's what I did. Like I had, I had, I have probably done almost every single master's program that's out there. I've done like a couple semesters of a social work degree. I've done everything but a thesis of a history degree. I've done um, project management and internet security and all these different like kind of like programs where I was like, I, I need a master's, but what am I going to do? And it wasn't until I went to the MFA program where I was like, okay, yeah, this is what I want to do. And that was like, I mean, I think like, like MFA programs are super expensive, but like one of the things that you do get out of an MFA program is you learn how the craft works and it makes you have a better tool set. Like sure. You can build a doghouse out of a few like random boards and a single hammer and a box full of nails, <laughs> or you can learn how to use a table saw and cut the boards to length. Right. So like, I would say like I was building dog houses out of like random shit I found before. <laughs> and now I'm at the point where like I can, I can write a book and it looks like I use the tools of the craft. And that's a huge like to me. To me, as a as someone who wants to be a professional writer, as someone who who takes pride in my craft or try to take pride in my craft, like that for me was a big deal. And so that's how I ended up there. Like I I think like we need to like there's a, there's this attitude, um, especially in publishing. Like once you've made it, you've made it. But I no, I think we can always be a little bit better than we are. Like for me, like I like I'm a much better writer than I was with my second book because I have with the third book. And so now I'm like trying to figure out like, how do I, where do I go from there? Like, how do I up my craft even more? How do I, how do I push the limits of my craft? And how do I like explore those new conversations I haven't touched on yet? Well, something else about you, I think like from my perspective anyway, is that you are extremely good at um, encapsulating sort of complicated ideas about craft in a way that is very understandable. So like today you had this amazing tweet thread, which I will try and link to in the show notes. Cause I realized that when people are listening to this, it won't be today anymore. No. <laughs> 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 yeah. um, but it was about novel openings and the promise of the story. Yes. Can you yeah. just remind me what that means? Yeah. So like we always talk about the promise of the story. And I think a lot of times we hear these terms and they become buzzwords. Like in, like, I mean, I have a day job. I, I work for the federal government and we have these like processes that we'll talk about that, lose all their meaning because they just become these buzzwords we rely on. And I think the promise of the story has become to, has come to mean like everything from like the plot to the theme to like the character development to just everything that happens in the story. But my the biggest thing I wanted to convey to to folks writing is I see a lot of books where folks are opening the story in the inciting incident because 
the common wisdom has been like, okay, you have to start the story in the inciting incident. And that's true, but you need some like stasis before that happens. Like we need to know like what is the current situation before we're launched on this adventure. And so like we always talk about the promise of the story and the promise of the story is the combination of that current, you know, you know, current state of the world for your characters and the inciting incident, right? So like if you like one of the the example. So, like, and one of the ways I like to talk about story is like to use common stories we all know, right? That you can use fairy tales, but fairy tales, depending on who wrote them, are crafted in very different ways. However, movies are so standardized in the way that they're they're forced to tell a story to com- you know to conform to like both this you know commercial aspect and just because of what we're taught to expect from a movie that it's sometimes easier to use a movie. So, like for example, if you're talking about like a movie like Billy Madison. Like you very quickly know what the promise of the story is, right? We open up and Billy and his friends are having like this party and they're acting like man children. And then his dad kind of pulls him in and says, you're not going to get my inheritance unless you go back to school because you never finished mm-hmm. anything. Right. And then boom, that's the inciting incident. We know when mm-hmm. he's going, he goes off on his journey. Right. And so now he's on his journey. He's going to go through every repeat, every single grade. I mean, it's a, t- it's, it's a movie that like has not aged well. <laughs> like I love this movie, like when I first watched it, but like we just tried to rewatch it and now it's like damn near unwatchable now. Um, but like, it still has some really funny parts, but it's a very like straight to the point. Like we know what the story is like, same with, if you think of like hunger games, because I think a hunger games is probably like the, the YA that is closest to a film format and the way it's, it's scripted out and written. Which, of course, is part of the – because the author's background. But if you look at the first Hunger Games book, like, you can see um, those beats in the story. Like, you can see we open up and, and Katniss is getting ready and she goes out and she's hanging out with Gail and they see the Avox, the girl who later becomes an Avox, like, that gets taken away by the, the, you know, the district. So we know it's, like, a very high-tech, you know, society, even though she lives in this very, like, kind of squalid place. And then there's this interaction with her sister and her mom. And then, boom, we're at the, the what do they call it? The, the reaping or whatever they call it. And <laughs> I can't remember. It's like, it's all, it's all like farm terms. And so like <laughs> she volunteers as tribute, right? But we know why she volunteers as tribute because we've already had this establishing shot where we know who she is and what she's about. And I think a lot of times with writers, especially like um, as I, as I read, you know, aspiring authors and, and what their like their their stories look like. Like we've been told so much, like get to open with the inciting incident, open with the inciting incident, that they're not doing that establishing shot. So what happens is, you know, you open where like your main character is being chased by like some creature. But like, why should I care? Right? Like, right. like, like, why should I re- keep reading? Like, I don't know who this who this girl or guy is. Like, all I know is they're being chased by some creature. I'm like, cool story, bro. I got other shit to read. Which I'm sure is the agent's perspective, right? It's like, ah, 10 yeah, pages I mean, later. I think that this is probably the most given piece of advice for some reason. Somebody out there is telling everybody to start, like, in media rest or whatever, like, in the yeah. middle of this action. But so I will get all these manuscripts where like somebody is getting punched in the jaw or their car blows up or whatever, but I haven't even met them yet. Right. Like, I don't care. I'm like, so, I always like try to explain like character development's like a first date, right? Like if you show up to a first date and the first thing the person sits across from you says, here's a list of all my exes and how our relationships went down. You're like, uh, yeah, cool story. Um, I'm going to get the deck. <laughs> You got this? All right. It was nice to meet you. And you're out, right? And it's too much at once. Like you yeah. have to give you have to give a reader a time to build that relationship so they care. Like I mean, and that's kind of like the idea, like when people talk about pacing, right? Like people always talk about pacing, like how fast the events come, but pacing isn't necessarily how fast the events are like thrown at the reader. It's about how much the reader cares at that point. 
so that their kids are willing to like they have to reader has to be invested but i think a lot of times the writing advice it doesn't consider the reader right like a lot of writing advice that you hear that's just terrible are these sound bites that people have like condensed condensed into like these like sort of like self-help tips right like run every day or write every day <laughs> or eat healthy like like my husband was listening to some podcasts because he loves podcasts and he was like yeah somebody was talking about um for when you're eating on a diet you want to um eat food not too much mostly plants and ve- uh, vegetables and fruit or some some shit like that and i was like that is like the stupidest like non-advice yeah. ever like I will eat a plate of like dried fruit and it's not going to be any better for me than like, than like something that's equally as calorie laden. Right. So like we, we tend, we tend to like trying to like boy, distill every down thing down into these cute sound bites. But if there's like, if you don't put those in context, they mean nothing to the writer. And I think a lot of writing advice is focused on the writer and not how the reader perceives the story. And I think that's, especially if you're writing for children, you need to understand how your reader is going to perceive the story. And so like, that was one of the reasons I wanted to like write that, that thread, because I'm like, I think a lot of folks are like reading this, this advice. And you see a lot of writers on Twitter, like, you know, they're like, I'm going to tell you how to craft an opening scene. And then you're like, okay, but you said nothing. Like you just like gave like, like 16 examples of opening scenes from your books. Like nobody cares about your book, bro. Like everyone's got a book. <laughs> like, like, like tell us about like some crap. Like put it to something we all know, right? And so that's one of the things I, I always liked about Hamlin was a lot of times when we had these lectures, like the writers there, you know, would put the the craft le- lesson into context of you know of a, of a popular piece of fiction. They would use like M. T. Anderson's Feed, or they would use. Um, so one of the books on the required reading list, or they would, you know, if they're talking about like fantasy in middle grade, there here's a list of fantasy books, and here's some excerpts from the books to see where how the writer did it. And I think that helps more than anything else. And I think Twitter now, especially since you have so many characters, there's really no excuse, you know, not to say something worthwhile. Do you have, let's say, uh, there's a listener who would like a bunch of craft information that is not terrible but can't necessarily afford to go to an MFA program. Do you have favorite resources or books to recommend on craft? Like, I feel like, like the internet is basically, if you're a self-starter, I'm not a self-starter. Like I'm I'm really not like, I wish I was, Uh, but the internet, like you Google anything, right. And you can find like a million like um, sites for stuff. Like for example, um, psychic distance. I'm like a lot of these, the writing programs have PDFs on online, like, for example, I know the Purdue Owl site has a bunch of um, writing, um, how, like, how to format stuff and how to, I mean, for research papers, but also for, like, for example, if you're doing a CV or if you're doing, like, a narrative essay and those sorts of things. Um, I tend to not read as much book writing advice anymore as I do film writing advice because I've, I've had a significant, um, I have had a significant number of, like, books. Like, I like... I like Donald, like I like Donald Mouse's books. I think they're a good like entry level um, kind of primer for for aspiring authors who've read nothing. Um, so like that's like the writing, the breakout novel, and the fire and fiction. You don't think of both of those; they're the same damn book. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's just read like he just uses new examples in the la- the later one, right? So it's like that's a book you can probably find like used online for like three bucks. Um, so like, that's a good, but I, I really honestly don't think anyone should pay for craft advice. If you don't want to pay for an MFA, like there's enough 
where like a Google search will put you. I used to go to the absolute right message boards when I was still an aspiring author. I learned a lot from there, a lot from people sharing there. And that was, I mean, that was 10 years ago too. So like, I mean, there's even more out there now. Honestly, if you like, if there's an author you like, like if you like look at their website, they probably have some writing stuff out there um, who tell you about their process. I know a lot of people like uh, Lee Bardugo's, She's like, if then until kind of story structure format, which is basically if this, then this until, and that changes the condition and then that's the next scene. Um, so like, I think it's like, I think one of the things we get, we get kind of wrapped around the axle as well about writing is like, it's all advice and like any other advice, like some of it's good and some of it's garbage. <laughs> and like, you have to figure out what works for you. Like, like I just taught a revise, uh, revision course. And one of the things I wanted to like try to get across to folks is folks were like, well, I don't write my book that way. I'm like, that's cool. So here's another way you can do that. If you don't like to do it this way, like, like there is no such thing as a hard and fast way to write a book. Um, because if there were, then everyone would be published. And <laughs> not everyone is published, right? There's a whole bunch of different ways to write a bu- book. Like, like one of the things uh, people are always like, you have to write every day. And I'm like, okay, but, no, like sometimes you just can't face the page. Like sometimes you just have to think about the book. So like for me, like I don't write every day, but I think about the book every day, right? Like, so maybe I don't write today, but I, like I'm going to, you know, work through a scene in my head and make some notes about it. And like maybe listen to like something like a song that's going to try to jar something loose. And then tomorrow, like I'll go and I'll write, I'll write a bunch of words, right? So like, I think like that's one of the things like we have to get out of this mindset of like, this is the rule. I went to an SCBWI meeting. This is how they told me how to write a book. This is how I have to write a book. And it's not working. Why isn't it working? It's like, no, dude, it's like a toolbox. Like right. everybody's got to figure out what you want to put in your toolbox. Like I said, you can write a book like a rust with a rusty hammer and a handful of nails and like some slats from a pallet, right? Like, or you can like, <laughs> use the tools that like, you know, it, like, you know, a table saw and a, you know, and a radial saw and like some screwdrivers and stuff like that. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So now it is time to turn turn our attention to the thing I've been really wanting to talk about for months, which is your new book. Oh, yay. Yay. So the book is Dread Nation. It I is. think some listeners will have heard me gushing about this book on previous episodes of the podcast. But for anyone who needs the refresher, I'll give the quick summary. Dread Nation is set in an alternate history post-Civil War America in which black and native teenagers are sent to special combat schools to learn to fight the hideous hordes of undead shamblers who are bent on destruction. The lucky ones, and please know, listeners, that there are quotes around the word lucky, will become attendants for wealthy white women, basically ladies' maids who also have to put their lives on the line for their employers. The unlucky will be zombie food, basically. (laughs) So what is the nutshell version of how this project came to be? So um, it's really funny because people are always like, how did you come up with this idea? And I'm basically, I, I keep telling every folks, I'm like, I read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and got really angry. Like, so like, I was reading Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and I read the graphic novel, not the book, because I'm not a huge Jane Austen fan, which I know, I'm sorry, boo. Um, but I, her prose just like bores me to tears. But so I read the graphic novel. And as I'm going through this graphic novel, I'm like, this is a cute idea, but like, like I couldn't believe that these women who couldn't even get themselves dressed, right? Like if you think about the time period would be out there like swinging like swords and like, 
there's this whole weird thing in the in the book too. It's just kind of like even weirder. Like that, like all the like the well-to-do smart people send their daughters to Japan to be to be trained, but like they're poor, so they went to China. And I'm like, look, it's like this cultural appropriation on top of like this gross privilege on top. Of, like there's never anywhere in the book where you figure out what's happening to poor people. Like how are poor people surviving in this world, right? Like you, you know, like you have like a zombie outbreak and like, you're still like going to these fancy card parties and like giving the cut direct. And it was just, (laughs) it was just so maddening. And so like, I kind of like I do with most books that like irritate me is like, I kept thinking about it. Right. Cause like, I mean like good art, whether you dislike or like it provokes a response. And so like I left and I was like from the story after I had finished reading it and taking it back to the library and I kept thinking about it and I kept thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? Like, that never would have happened that way. Like it would have been like poor white women in England, like who are ladies maids out there trying to figure out how to swing like a fire poker or something to kill the dead. Right. Like, and like, and like you see it, like, even if you see like, like, I don't know if you've ever like read like the old, like historical romance where like the lady and her ladies maid are sent off to, to marry the Duke. And like the poor lady's maid is like uprooted from her family to go with this, this girl she works for and all these things like you yeah and so like like I just kept thinking about that and then I started to think about that what that would look like in America and I was like man it would have been like like slaves out there like fighting the dead and then I was like oh shit that's a good idea <laughs> and, then I, and then I started writing so but, but when I first met my first couple drafts of this book or the first draft of this book I wasn't a good enough writer to write it right like so I think that's one of the things like like we don't also don't talk about it's like sometimes you tr- you have a, an idea or a story and it's either not yours right it's just something that you you shouldn't write like I have stories that I would love to write but like they're just culturally not mine or you're just not a good enough writer to write it at that point mm-hmm. so I wrote like a very messy draft early draft um and this was like probably like 2000 uh, 13 14 like right after I had finished my um contract with Simon and Schuster and it just wasn't good. Like I, like I could, I could feel that there were, there were good parts in there, but it wasn't there yet. And then I went and got an MFA. And then like, we started talking, having more conversations about stuff like black lives matter in this country. And then I was like, ah, this is how I approach this. And it kind of all came together. I have to tell you, I marked and dog eared and underlined a lot of passages in this book. Um, because they're just resonated a lot. So there's one quote that I found this morning that, um, was, it seems very strange that in these very fraught times, folks would be more concerned with hardworking people trying to find a better life than monsters that actually want to eat them. Um, which is obviously about immigration and like xenophobia. <laughs> so despite this being historical, alt historical, and despite having a zombie element, so many of the things that you tackle in the book are concerns that are very much things that we're dealing with as a society right now. Like, institutionalized racism, colorism, misogyny, anti-immigration sentiment. Did you know in advance how timely and political the book would end up being, or did it just like come out like that? I don't think anybody could have predicted like what 2018 would look like. Like I just, like it was just kind of one of those things. Like I had just like basically like Jordan, Jordan Brown, my, my editor and I had just finished like the last like final like line edits um on the the book and like he sent me an email who's based and he was basically like I feel like you wrote the future in the past and I was like 
I was just trying to f- write a historical dystopia. Like, like I was just trying to write like the like worst like world I could think of. Like, because like this old, it always bothers me. Like in YA dystopias, especially that we have a tendency to have these all white casts when you know historically people of color have always lived in a dystopia, right? Like it's great for white people. Like the whole idea of a dystopia is it's great for some people and not so great for a whole bunch of others. So like this, like it was kind of like, I was looking backwards to kind of make this commentary on like, like these, this, the, you know, the great future and what the future looks like. But at the same time, then I ended up with this book that echoes a whole lot of what we're doing now. And no, I couldn't predict that because I don't think anybody wants to predict that. Like, <laughs> like, like nobody wanted, would have wanted to predict 2018. However, like what we're seeing in 2018 is not that different what we've seen throughout all of history. And I think that's one of the things like, you know, because we don't teach a comprehensive view of history in our in our American public schools. We teach a like a hero's version of history, right? It's all wars and and the people who saved the day. Like we don't tend to focus on how things were. And like I've always been more interested in social history than like, you know, military history and and political history so like i think like that was one of the things that just happened is like you know these are the ideas i wanted to discuss through the lens of history because i think it's easier for some people to come to these ideas if they think it happened long time ago far far away than if it's happening like in their neighborhood right now and so like i just ended up with this book that like now is like people are like it's so timely and i'm like yeah Lucky me. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. I, was like, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, I honestly would rather be a little bit more uh, distant. I know. <laughs> uh, anyway, our heroine Jane is funny and tough and prickly and flawed, and I love her so much. You just have a knack for writing characters that seem to leap off the page. Uh, do you have like a method, a technique for that? No, <laughs> like I like I try to make my characters not boring, which is really all I all I did for Jane. For Jane is Jane is for me a response to Huck Finn. So Jane is very much that same. Like if you were to read Huck Finn and you were to read Dread Nation, like you would see a lot of similarities between Jane and Huck. Like they both kind of are looking at the systems around them and kind of making these questions and and like having these questions and these these conversations within themselves and also within the people who around them who are in these systems of power and systems of of uh of you know of political systems and such and so like that's kind of where i was going with jane like like i love mark twain i like i love mark twain's writing as like as much as i hate jane austen i love mark twain which is not really something a lot of people tend to like say because i think like we're so much like, oh God, Huck Finn's racist, and like, yeah, Huck Finn's racist. Um, like, but it was eighteen eighty, but bro, like, like, <laughs> like everyone was pretty freaking racist by today's standards, and like, yeah, there's a lot of problems in Huck Finn, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of good in that story, and there's a, and I think Tween does a lot of like excellent things where he questions the world around him and he pokes fun at the people in power in a, in a way that I, I, I really adore. And so like, it seemed natural to like, Hey, if I'm going to write this book that's set in 1880, when Huck Finn was written, why not write, you know, a, an, a character who can kind of like give a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to this, basically this very American tradition, right? We still make kids read Huck Finn in school. Like, I mean, like, so like if I were going to write something that took place in the thirties and forties, I would have to like kind of do a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to, to, to kill a mockingbird. Right. So I think 
I think if you're if you're going to like kind of question an institution, it's good to use the tools of the institution. And I think Huck Finn is one of those books that we 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 read because it's like, oh, look, it has so many important things to say about racism and slavery. But really, it's just a book that makes white people feel good about themselves. And so it doesn't necessarily dismantle any of those beliefs about racism or slavery. And so I did want to use like a similar character to Huck to kind of like poke fun at that this this classic where we put it on the shelf and, you know, point to it as one of our great American writers. And I do think Twain's a good writer, a great writer. Um, but I, at the same time, yeah, like I think that's how you come up with the character. You steal other people's characters and you just make them <laughs> your own. Remix. Stop playing reason if you change the book. Yeah. <laughs> I, and actually it's funny. I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily, although um, Jane does carry a Mark Twain book around. I didn't, put that together but now that you've said it i can't unsee it so yeah. thank you. <laughs> you're welcome uh, but i would say that it's remixing other people's characters not stealing them but fair enough that's a good better way to put it probably i mean twain's <laughs> dead he's not gonna care so, <laughs> so uh, the importance of proper weaponry is very much a thing in this book how did you do that research if you did and if you had a fight off shambling hordes what would be your chosen weapon so i googled a lot and i didn't want i didn't want to use guns because i think guns especially like rapid fire guns are a more modern invention for us um all i can ever think in like every if you've ever look look if you have ever watched a zombie movie you know there's a point where they run out of bullets and they're like Oh no! What are we going to do now? <laughs> so, like, so, like, I was like, like the rifles in the Civil War were still pretty much single shot. Like, so, like, I don't live that far from. I live in Pennsylvania. I don't live that far from Gettysburg. I live maybe like twenty five minutes from Gettysburg. Um, and so, like, when you go to tour the battleground at, at Gettysburg, and like you hear I'm saying Gettysburg because that's how we say it around here. It's not Gettysburg. It's Gettysburg because. It's Pennsylvania. Um, but anyway, so like when you go to the battleground, toward the battleground, one of the things they always bring up is like when the battle was over and they started to pick up like the rifles and clear, clear the dead and feels one of the things they found were like there, it was such a pitched battle. There were um, soldiers who had jammed down four and five rounds into their weapon because it never fired. Right. So like they were, you know, it's like the old days, right? Like powder round spark, boom, do it again. But it was such a pitched battle that they were like, trying to shoot very fast and like there were the rounds were not coming out because they had like jammed like four or five rounds in there and all i could think it was like that is the dumbest thing ever <laughs> that you're like fighting for your life and you're not even shooting like you're not even doing anything and i was like so so guns were completely out except for of course like you had to have like the six shooter because that's like the american west right we have to that's our that's an icon of the american west even if it isn't necessarily the best gun ever made um so like we had to like that she has so like i had to think of like what works and i don't watch the walking dead but i love michonne and i love the idea of her and i like the the clips i have seen with her like i love that she's very like no frills like she's got this sword and she's like and there goes ahead and i'm like that's bananas awesome however i can't see a lot of like like very japanese style swords in america at that time Um, especially since like the 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 whole um 
aesthetic against Asian people was not the best. So like I would, I was trying like playing around and it made sense to look at farm implements. So like everything, all the weapons in the book are basically sort of kind of like bastardized farm implements. So they, you know, they have a scythe and there's a sickle. Um, there's a, later in the book, there's a, what we, he, they, she calls a porcupine, which is basically a wooden club with some nails in it. Mm. Um, there's, uh, I, I thought like, you know, it would be nice to have like, you know, sort of like the shorter swords you would see like in the more European tradition. So she has these swords that she calls mollies because like, you know, it's a kind of like the whole like molly, like play on the molly pitcher idea. Like a lady like defending herself and like, here's this urban legend about these, these swords. So like, I thought about the weaponry, but mostly because I just wanted to have cool weaponry. Because I don't think you can have a, a, a zombie book without cool weaponry, whatever that looks like. And for uh, trying to keep it as like a very American book, this is this is where we ended up. That works. Do you have a favorite? Jane Sickles, I think, because there's just such a ridiculous like, you know, like it's like something you use to like cut grass, <laughs> and you're just like out there like do 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 like and kill zombies. So, what other new or upcoming YA books would you recommend for readers who love Dread Nation? Oh, so this is I have a real problem because everyone's like what is a read life for Dread Nation? And I'm like, well, it's not historical fiction and people have called it horror, but I don't think it's horror because I don't like zombies. And so like, I tried to write a book, like the, a horror, a zombie book that wasn't scary. Um, but I will say Heidi Heilig's um, Amuse of Fire. I've read that and it comes out this fall and it, it, it engages with ideas of colonialism um, and has this really cool kind of magic background. And it relies on like a shadow puppet tradition um, so I definitely think like Heidi's book would be something if you're, if you're interested in and you like what I what is going on in Dread Nation, I think you'll like how she uses history and also kind of magic and kind of mushes them together to get this like really like kind of different conversation on, on what it means to be um, both a colonizer and colonized. So, and then I also, if you like any of my earlier books, if you liked Promise of Shadows or <laughs> Revenge is Bound, or if you even read them, thanks, um, you will definitely like, um, uh, a Blade So Black by Latrice McKinney, um, which comes out in the fall. So, like, like, there's not, I don't know, like, I can't think of anybody else who's used um, history and, like, monsters, but I think it'd be really cool if more people did because, like, I think there's, like, so many different things you could do with just, like, taking, like, a fraught historical time period and throwing some monsters in there and seeing what comes up. So, <laughs> totally. So, yeah. the question that I always ask everyone, and it's honestly an excuse for me to be able to say what I'm obsessed with is what are you obsessed with? It does not have to be book. It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. And I will tell you mine while you're thinking. Yes. So mine is very silly. I'm in the midst of, uh, what's the word? Binging. <laughs> <laughs> Words are hard. <laughs> binging this Netflix original show called nailed it in which an amateur bakers try to recreate very difficult and beautiful baked goods like Pinterest style and fail utterly. Oh my God. Um, I read something yesterday that described it as the debauched American cousin to the great British bake off. And that about sums it up. It actually has decent tips. The episodes are short. It's very funny. And how short are these episodes? Like, like, are they like three minutes? But that nice. That's nice. Because I can just sort of like fit it in. And I, uh, have been enjoying it a lot. What are you obsessed with, Justina? 
I'm obsessed with Black Panther. Um, like that's like, like I keep going back to this movie just because there's so much about it that you just, you like, I, it's hard to explain if you haven't seen the movie and I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but there's so much that's happening in that movie in that two hours of a movie. And there's so many ideas that they're playing with that. It just kind of like, it's just amazing. Um, and I just feel like there, we don't have a lot of movies that engage with ideas of like the legacy of shadow slavery and, you know, black identity, the black diaspora and those kinds of things while also being really fun like, like, like it really tends to be a drag when you have a slave movie. <laughs> like you're just like, oh god, here we go, twelve years of slave. This is fun. Like, right? Like, so there's not really a lot of movies that like can engage with that kind of those deep, like, very unsettling ideas in a way where you're just like, holy shit! Like that was like two hours of social justice commentary and also really cool spaceships. Um, so like I'm obsessed with that. And I'm also obsessed with like older TV shows that I've like watched and then like kind of never finished a season. So like right now um, we're watching what we call the, our family murder show. Um, Cause we always try to like watch one TV show together in, in the evening and with, with like on demand stuff, it makes it a lot much easier to like kind of stream a whole mm. um, TV show. And so we were watching Brooklyn nine, nine, but we're all caught up with that. And right now we're watching psych, which I don't know if you remember it was on USA. I do not. Um, uh it's so and it's like so it's on it's on uh it's on the amazon prime because they're the dark the dark lords uh dark lords of media and um like it's just really fun to like go back and watch these episodes that like i've seen just about every episode but like i've forgotten them and just watching how the story unfolds and i think it's like it's really nice when you when you work in like books to watch a show because you can still see how a story works in another format but like your brain isn't necessarily looking for like the inciting incident and the long dark night of the soul and like all those things that we tend to look for when I read a book. So yeah. yeah. Good. I like those. Well, Justina, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you to Justina Ireland. Dread Nation drops April 3rd and will be available everywhere. Fine books are sold. And again, thanks to Amy Spaulding and all you listeners. As you've no doubt heard me say 9 million times, the Literati Cast has a Patreon. If you throw in a buck, you get the chance to ask questions in advance, and you just might win books, including the two awesome books we talked about today. That's patreon.com slash literatycat. I'm putting info about the show, including important links about our guest authors, and info about all the books we talked about in the show notes. That is at jenniferloughrin.com slash literatycast. Thanks, and see you next time.